This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chutka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Attention deficit hyperactivity disorder has the potential to impact and impair multiple aspects of life, including underachievement in education, difficulty with employment, and social relationships. ADHD has long been felt to be a disorder of childhood that gradually diminishes as one approaches adulthood. However, it's now being considered that ADHD can develop in adulthood. It's thought that around 4% of adults have ADHD and the majority are undiagnosed and untreated. In this podcast, we'll discuss ADHD in adults, its effects on those who have it, and how it can be managed. Our guest is Dr. Mohit Chauhan, a psychiatrist from the Mayo Clinic. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Talks. Welcome, Mohit, and thank you for joining us today. This is an interesting topic. Um, thank you, Daryl, and thank you for having me. I agree that this is uh, very timely and very interesting because there has been a lot of attention on the concept of adult ADHD, and it's a controversial topic, so I'm glad we are covering it in our podcast. Yeah. I agree. Well, let's start by asking you to give us a definition of ADHD. So ADHD or attention deficit and hyperactivity disorder is a neurodevelopmental illness, which presents with persistent pattern of inattention and or uh, hyperactivity and impulsivity. So there are two groups of symptoms. One is the inattention and one is the hyperactivity and impulsivity. These patterns of inattention and hyperactivity must be present in multiple domains of life. So it cannot be just work or just school. It has to be present both at home and school and social life. And the symptoms should be severe enough to interfere with or reduce the quality of academic or socio-occupational functioning for the diagnosis to be made. Well, I have to admit, I have a few patients who have this diagnosis, but I've been in practice 40 years. And I, when I look back, you know, 20 years ago, I don't recall seeing anybody with a diagnosis of ADHD. Is this a new condition or did we just not recognize it in the past? No, it is not a new condition. The concept of ADHD has been present for a very long period of time. The prevalence of ADHD is increasing. Part of it is because there is better recognition of the condition. Part of it is loosening of the diagnostic criteria. Earlier, we used to consider people with ADHD only if their socio-occupational functioning or academic performance was severely affected. They just could not manage any aspect of their life. But increasingly, we have come to recognize that there are a group of people who have mild to moderate symptoms, and there is greater recognition that even mild to moderate symptoms affect functioning and quality of life. And so for those reasons, uh, greater people are coming to clinical attention. All right. So the big question, do children get AHD and continue it into adulthood, or can this be acquired as an adult? So ADHD, as we currently understand, is a neurodevelopmental illness, meaning it is present from childhood. And for diagnosis to be made of ADHD, many of the symptoms have to be present before the age of 12. Recently, you know, as we've talked about, there's a lot of focus on this concept of adult ADHD. 
So I would like to take a moment and, and differentiate between presence of symptoms of inattention versus the diagnosis of ADHD. So symptoms of inattention can be due to a lot of other illnesses that can mimic ADHD. These include you know, most commonly anxiety disorders, mood disorders, uh, use of substances such as alcohol and cannabis, uh, hormonal difficulties, uh, as you very well know, as an internist, or, you know, hypothyroidism, hyperthyroidism, difficulties with attention can also happen with, with lack of sleep, obstructive sleep apnea, things like that. But as you pointed out, there, there are a couple of possibilities that must be carefully considered. First is that an adult did have ADSD as a child, but did not come to clinical attention, either because of lack of resources, uh, health literacy, or cultural beliefs. And then there is a subgroup of patients who had mild symptoms, and they performed adequately as children in a very disciplined and structured environment while they were younger. But once the cognitive demands increased and external structure and discipline dissipated, uh, symptoms started to affect functioning, and then these patients come to clinical attention. Now, as you started the conversation that traditional understanding has been that ADHD is the illness of the children, that still remains. The traditional understanding was that for majority of the patients' symptoms dissipated as they grew older, we now understand that while hyperactivity and impulsivity symptoms largely dissipate, almost 60% of adults who had ADHD as children continue to struggle with cognitive difficulties. And that certainly has to be taken into account. So in many cases, this is a lifelong phenomenon. It's going to continue throughout uh, one's employment, relationships, and so forth. Is there more than one type of ADHD? So ADHD is a single illness, attention deficit and hyperactivity disorder, but based on the predominance of symptoms, DSM divides them into ADHD, predominantly inattentive type, predominantly hyperactivity, impulsive type, or combined type. Essentially, it all depends on what are the most prominent symptoms or what combination of symptoms a person is experiencing. You mentioned the various degrees of severity of symptoms. Can that change? So can you start out in childhood with very mild or minimal symptoms, so it maybe wasn't recognized, but becomes more significant as one gets into adulthood? So I will rephrase it. It's not necessarily that the symptoms get worse. If anything, as we have pointed out, for some people, symptoms actually improve. However, you know, in today's time, especially with our economy being increasingly a knowledge-based economy, as opposed to an agrarian or a production-based economy where you, you know, learned a skill and you could manage employment based on that for the rest of your life, much more people have knowledge-based jobs where you have to constantly upgrade and learn. So, of course, as those cognitive demands increase, people with mild symptoms can then start to have challenges. So we often see patients where if you take a careful history, you see that they struggled somewhat, but they managed sufficiently, and then they got a new position, they got a new job, which was more cognitively demanding or which was in an environment where focusing was more challenging. It was just more mm -hmm. disruptive environment, more fast-paced environment. And then they come to clinical attention just, you know, so in that sense, it becomes a context-dependent illness, not necessarily that the symptoms are getting any worse. Okay. So an individual with mild symptoms in childhood, if put in the 
proper environment may not have significant problems as an adult, or if put in a different environment, may have significant issues. Absolutely. Yes. All right. What are the risk factors for ADHD? Who is more likely to get this than others? So uh, ADHD, uh, as is the case with most neurodevelopmental illnesses, have been found to have a, a very strong genetic basis. If a child has ADHD, parents or siblings of that child have anywhere, you know, different studies have, have found the risk to be two to eight times higher. Twin studies have indicated that there's about 80% heritability. The genome-wide association studies have implicated the dopamine transporter system and dopamine receptors as far as the risk of ADHD is concerned. And then neuroimaging studies have shown that there is a reduced volume in the frontal lobe areas, uh, prefrontal subcortical area, in the cerebellum. And surprisingly, some of these structural changes also improve in some people, not in all children, but in some children, they do tend to improve and are correlated with improvement in symptoms. But again, as I pointed out, two things to always be careful about is the context in which it is happening, and two, that 60% of children will continue to have at least the executive dysfunction, the cognitive difficulties as they grow older. I want to get into the diagnosis of ADHD, but there's something you said I want to go into just a little bit more detail. You mentioned the changes within the brain and imaging studies. Is, is that a part of the diagnostic evaluation or is that more research-based? It is more of a research-based right now because the findings are not specific enough for diagnoses. So the diagnosis of ADHD remains a clinical diagnosis. All right. So our audience is primary care providers. And how might we suspect ADHD in a patient who comes in to see us, but has not had an established diagnosis of ADHD? If a patient is presenting with sustained, and I emphasize that word, that it cannot be just because in the past six months, in the past three months, uh, it never had problems before, but is having problems now, and the circumstances have not changed where there are not necessarily increased cognitive demands. So the important part is, as we take the history to see how long the symptoms have been present, the DSM requires that the symptoms be present for at least six months, but generally, you know, a careful history will reveal that symptoms have been present much longer, most of the time since childhood. And so sustained difficulties of executive functioning. What does that mean? Essentially means, you know, examples of difficulties with sustained attention, meaning tasks are started, but then abandoned. So there are multiple unfinished tasks, switching from task to task, disorganization, not being able to collect all the pieces of tools or, or information that is required to complete a task going back and forth. Those are the inattention symptoms. Uh, oftentimes, it can be difficulties in sustaining attention during a conversation or a meeting. And not only just at workplace, I know we, are, we, we mostly talk about this, we're talking about the workplace, but I do want to include that as we collect that information, we have to make sure uh, that the problems are present in other social contexts, right? Uh, not being able to even engage in leisure activity that requires sitting for long periods of time and focusing, you know, difficulties with focusing in social conversations, even one-to-one -one conversations, feeling like spaced out and missed some things. And from a hyperactivity perspective in adults, it's more a feeling of inner restlessness. They can't sit still. They can blurt out, have a hard time waiting their turn in lines and things of that nature. 
So if those that symptom domain is present, then one has to consider the possibility of ADHD. Okay. Well, ADHD has received a great deal of media attention in the last several years. So given this, do patients recognize the fact that they may have this or are most of these patients diagnosed by clinicians? Most of the patients that we are seeing are self-referrals or sometimes referrals from friends and family members who are concerned and occasionally from our primary care colleagues. But most of the time, the first step is taken by the patient, especially in, in I'm specifically talking about adults. In children, this is often brought to the attention of the parents by teachers or parents themselves uh, seek help. But you're right about there's a lot of media attention, including social media attention in ADHD, which has led to a significant increase in self-referrals for you know, the possibility of ADHD. You know, the unfortunate part is that, you know, of course, there, there's a subjectivity to these symptoms, and there's a very big risk of misattributing problems such as burnout, mood and anxiety disorders, a challenging workplace environment, lack of sleep to, you know, again, it, it, it will mimic. Essentially, the difficulties will be of inattention and difficulties completing tasks because you're too tired, you're burnt out, or you are depressed. And so one of the things that is missing is the underlying cause requires a very careful attention and, and clinical examination and history taking. And that part is sometimes missing when people are, are misattributing and insisting that, that they have ADHD. Mm-hmm. What's the role of psychiatry in ADHD? Should patients where we suspect ADHD be seen initially by psychiatry or can primary care providers manage these patients on their own? So I would divide these patients in three groups. The first group would be patients who had well-established diagnosis of ADHD as children. At some point of time, they felt that things were going fairly well, symptoms had improved, uh, life was stable. And now there are increasing cognitive demands and they're struggling. I don't think that those patients require a referral to a psychiatrist to make the diagnosis. The second group of patients is where a careful history provides a very robust account of significant difficulties in childhood. You know, even let's say it was brought up by family and teachers, but for whatever reason, it was decided that medication treatment should not be pursued you get a very clear history of lifelong struggle. In those cases, I say there may be. If a primary care physician is comfortable diagnosing and managing, it's fine. And the third case is where, well, really there's not a very strong developmental history, but there is suspicion, but there are comorbidities that need to be teased out and ruled out. Those cases should certainly be sent to psychiatry for a consultation for diagnostic clarity. Okay, so let's talk about management. Where do you start? Let's say we have a patient who was not diagnosed in childhood, maybe mild symptoms, but is now struggling either in college as a young adult or having difficulty in the workplace. And we as a primary care provider suspect ADHD and we send that patient to psychiatry. Where are they going to start management and treatment? The evidence, especially talking about adults, of non-pharmacological interventions is limited. So cognitive training, behavioral interventions, exercise, all of those things have been found to be helpful. However, the most robust evidence is still for pharmacological treatment. And we can talk more about what categories of medications are there. So in very mild symptoms, uh, regular aerobic exercise, 
healthy sleep hygiene. There are strategies for time management that people can learn. They're reducing distractions, both internal distractions in terms of keeping lists so that people are not jumping from one thing to another, setting short periods of time to do cognitively challenging tasks, reducing external distractions. All of those things help improve performance, but if those are not sufficient, then pharmacological interventions are required. Give a rough estimate of how many or what percent you think of patients can be managed in behavioral management techniques versus pharmacologic. I really do not have the numbers for that. I will be just making it out of thin air. But again, as I said, most guidelines would say, given how robust the response with medications is and how big of an effect size it is, medications should be considered unless there are contraindications. Sure. Okay. So let's talk about the pharmacologic options. What, uh, what's out there that works? Three groups of medications uh, that are FDA approved. Two of them are stimulants and one is a non-stimulant. So the stimulants are one is the methylphenidate group of medications, most commonly Ritalin and Concerta are used. Then the second group is the amphetamine group of medications like Adderall, uh, Vyvanse, So both of these are medications that are psychostimulants. The third group of medications is what is called a selective norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors. These are not controlled substances because they do not have the risk of uh, misuse and abuse. They also have been shown to be effective, although the effect size is not that large, safer in terms of if you're concerned about abuse of stimulants and such, they they are safer options. There's also some evidence that they might help with anxiety. So if there's comorbid anxiety, those could be the first choice medications to pick. And there are two of them. One is atomoxetine, and more recently, uh, veloxazine has been approved that belongs to the same class of medications. Okay. So if the general trend is for patients to gradually improve over time, do these medications need to be continued indefinitely, or do you ever try tapering them off, stopping them at some point in their life? That's a very good question. So as I said, it depends, you know, severity wise, if it's a severe illness. So one of the things that we didn't touch upon is, you know, what are the consequences if we, if we don't treat it? As you pointed out at the very beginning of the talk that there is a, you know, there are concerns about poor socio-occupational functioning, limited academic uh, achievement. But another big one is a big risk of accidents. People with untreated ADHD have a much higher mortality rate, much of it attributed to accidents. You can imagine it can be if you're, if you're not paying attention, if you're impulsive, then the odds of you getting into an accident of some kind increase. So for severe symptoms where it significantly affects life, I would say it's best to continue the medications till the cognitive demands are there. But in mild to moderate symptoms, uh, let's say you know a, a person is in a demanding job, but now they have learned the tricks of the trade, they are performing well, then of course the efforts can, should be made to find the lowest effective dose. Let's say that higher dosages were required. Now things are much more stable, things are calmer, performance has improved. We can gradually lower the dose and attempts should be made from time to time, especially when, when the stressors have resolved, when the demands have cognitive demands have resolved, to see if a person can manage without medications. Okay. Well, Mohit, you've given us some very interesting information on ADHD. Can you summarize our discussion maybe with two or three important points? Yes, of course. I think the most important aspect I would like to highlight, especially in terms of adult ADHD, is that at this time, 
there is no evidence that there is adult onset ADHD. There have been some longitudinal studies that have found that there are adults who have inattention problems, who will meet criteria for ADHD and did not have ADHD as children. But when a more closer, when, when you look at that data more closely and people have done other studies where they have looked at this particular group of patients, they find there was always other explanations, almost always. In one longitudinal study, they found that 95% of the patients diagnosed with ADHD using self-rating scales actually had other explanations, that they did not actually have ADHD. So for now, there is no adult onset ADHD as we understand it today. It is a neurodevelopmental illness and symptoms have to be present before the age of 12. The second important point is that there are several mimics, both in terms of psychiatric illnesses and physical health problems that should be carefully ruled out before making the diagnosis. The last point that I will make is that the stimulant medications that are used to treat ADHD do have abuse potential. And the majority of young adults who are inappropriately using stimulants have obtained it from those who have been prescribed the medication. So it's important to periodically assess appropriate use of medications and reassessment for comorbid psychiatric diagnoses, especially substance use, uh, should be conducted by our primary care colleagues. Well, we've been discussing ADHD in adults with Dr. Mohit Chauhan from the Department of Psychiatry at the Mayo Clinic. Mohit, thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us today. Terrell, thank you. This was a very, uh, very invigorating discussion. Thank you. You can now listen to over 100 different medical topics developed for primary care providers on Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts. Find them at ce.mayo.edu or your favorite podcasting app. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcast, please follow us. Stay healthy and see you next week.